Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 1st, 2014. This is episode 1399 of the Survival Podcast. And that means I made a mistake. I, on Monday in my head, I thought Friday was going to be episode 1400, but I've had a lot going on in the last two weeks. I guess that's how I messed that up, but kind of bummed. I was going to call it Friday the 1400th, you know, and it would fit with the history segment and all, but I guess it's going to be Monday the 1400th. Uh, that doesn't just sound as cool. guess it's some of the lingering stuff from uh, my Asperger's. You can look that up if you don't know what it is and think the word's offensive. It's not. Anyway... Before we get into today's uh, show, let's take care of our housekeeping. But before I even do that, let me remind you what we've got going on today. Today's show is a listener callback show because it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, your time to call me and tell me what you think or to ask me a question or ask me to comment on something. The way you do that, you pick up your phone, you dial the following number, 866-65-THINK, 866 866- 65-T-H-I-N-K. If for any reason you're dialing something and it doesn't have letters on it, like Skype, really, you know, where you just stick the numbers in off your keypad, 866-658-4465. You're not going to get me. You're going to get a voice message. It's going to tell you how to leave the, your, your call. And you do that, and you might end up on the air. A little special note. There's a couple calls today came in from a little post I did on Facebook. And a few more that are in the queue from that post. One of the bonuses of following me on social media. Sometimes you get little bonuses like that. So you can find me on, uh, the, on Facebook. It's the, it's, uh, facebook.com forward slash survival podcast. You can follow me on Twitter. Little things like that go out. But a bigger, uh, bigger, uh, thing, uh, today I took any phone message that's not either from today or already selected for this show backwards and obliterated. I have created a clean slate going forward. So if you want to be on the air on a call, you need to call in from this moment forward. Sometimes you just get a backlog to a point where you go, I'm not going to go in there, and we wiped it out. But I do have about 12 calls to take for you today. Another quick announcement on the call-in shows. I've had some email issues that have made getting in touch with some members of the expert council difficult. I think I've rectified that. I think next week we're going to start where I'm actually giving expert council members questions if they don't have one from the audience. Or if the ones from the audience are like, well, this guy's answered this question in a different form like 800 times already. We need to get him a new question. Anyway, with that. Let's take care of our sponsors today, guys. How about KnifeKits.com? How about you want to learn a new skill? You're not sure what it is. Hell, go learn how to make a knife. Go to KnifeKits.com. Get a kit. Get a book or a DVD. If you're not sure what to do, call them up and ask them. They'll tell you what to get. When you do that, you know, get that first kit out. Get the handle materials selected. Start learning to fit and finish. Learn how to sharpen that knife. Learn how to make a sheath for it. And guess what? A lot of those skills are going to translate into other things that you can do with them. And... It doesn't cost a lot of money. You can buy a kit on KnifeKits.com for between $10 and $20 for all different shapes and forms of knives. Pick up some handle material for another $10 and make something custom and unique. Dads, what a great project to do with your kids. 
teach your kids to make knives. And you're going to learn how to sharpen because those kits, the knife becomes in a kit, not very sharp. You know why? You don't want to be working with a sharp blade when you're doing the finishing work. You want to get it finished and then sharpen that blade up to a razor-sharp honing edge. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. You want my endorsement of Backwoods Home? Started reading it when I got out of the Army in 1993. Became a subscriber in 1994. Today is 2014. That is 20 years. I am still a subscriber. If I need to say more than that, I really don't know how I can give a better endorsement of a product. I don't think there is another company on planet Earth. Oh, there's two. There is one other company, and it's not because I love them. It's just been easier. I'll tell you who it is in a second. But there's, a, there's two companies on planet Earth that I have been a customer with for two decades consecutively without leaving them as their customer. One is Backwoods Home Magazine. The other one is State Farm Auto Insurance just because it's what I got when I was 16 and got my first insurance policy, and I've never left them. And my rates keep going down because I'm a low risk, I guess. So uh, that's it, man. I I can't think of anybody else I've done business with for 20 years. You want to you want to know why? Get over to backwoodshome.com and check them out. Next up, let's go into the year that was the episode. I'm going to warn you in advance. I may offend some people today, and if I offend you with this, that means you can't hear somebody say that they don't believe what you believe without being offended, and that means the problem's yours, not mine. Uh, I have three history segments today. Richard II is deposed. Accusations of host desecration in Ottoman Empire, threatening Tamerlane and Constantinople. Um, I am going to uh, do accusations of host desecration because I believe that my status in life is a person who was born and raised and then left the Catholic Church eventually to leave all organized religion and become a deist. I have a unique viewpoint into the modern version of this and the historical context of why it was so important. Um, but here it is. A Christian woman living in Posen, Poland, is accused of stealing three wafers or hosts representing the Holy Eucharist. In religious terms, that means she stole the body of Christ as representative by the wafers. There is no easy way to say that without some technical disagreement, so try to roll with it. She then gave the host to the Jews of Posen, who were then accused of desecrating the host by stabbing them repeatedly. Reportedly, the hosts bled. Maybe the guy cut himself when he was stabbing them. I don't know. All the Jews in question, the rabbi in the town, and the Christian woman were burned to death on the spot. Slowly, accusations of host desecration are just beginning. The accusations will die out sometime after the Protestant Reformation gets going in 1517. It will be an ugly time in between. My taste by, my taste, my take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at TSB Wiki. Host desecration grows logically out of the belief that the wafer and the wine presented during ritual mass are changed into the body and blood of Christ. Because of this belief, it makes sense that injuries to the host would be taken seriously, as in the actual body of Jesus had been injured. Therefore, accidentally dropping the host would be considered a serious offense aside from any religious question. When we asked our Catholic neighbor if she believed this transformation took place physically and truly, she affirmed that it did take place, and her whole demeanor made it clear that she believed this fully and truly. No further dialogue could shake her from one conviction. this one conviction, though out of respect we did not try that hard. 
I would say that if you are a Catholic and you believe this, I would not try to change your mind. And I think that is respect for your faith. It's not, it's not up to me to tell you what to believe and what not to believe. I do think, however, that I should be able to publicly state that I don't agree with you. And I, I think that there's a lot of harm in the history of Catholicism due to such beliefs as this. And I say that not as a student of Catholic history after I left the church and looked for everything wrong with it. I say that as a student of the Catholic Church who went through the catechisms and went through Catholic school and went through the part of comparative uh, religion education, the Catholic school, not catechism, but the school. If you go to a Catholic school, they're pretty good about admitting what they screwed up. And there's a lot of death and misery and murder and bloodshed in our history related to this belief. Whether it will be true or not, the bloodshed related to it is quite horrific. Burning someone to death slowly because they desecrated a piece of bread is a pretty horrific thing for anybody to do, regardless of what you believe about that piece of bread. But what is... So, do Catholics believe this? I can't tell you what the majority of Catholics believe. I can't. Because Catholic saying you're Catholic today is like saying you're... Well, it's like saying you're Jewish. You have everything from Orthodox Jews to Jews that are, I guess you would say, tradition-based Jews or cultural Jews. So Catholic is massive in how devout somebody is. I can tell you that Catholic doctrine, as taught in the catechism, which for those of you in other faiths would be similar to, let's call it Sunday school, uh, for, for young people, is that yes, it is. And I'll tell you, as a young person brought up in that faith, indoctrinated in that faith, and dare I say brainwashed, because that's how I feel it is now, having stepped away from it many, many years ago, um, there is no reason you wouldn't believe it. When your mom tells you something, your dad tells you something, your teacher tells you something, the priest tells you, your aunts, your chuchis, and if you're a Ukrainian, you know what a chuchi is, um, and everybody in your life that you know, love, and trust tells you something is true as a small child, there's no reason for you not to believe it. Um, but the, the process is transubstination, okay, is, is what it is. Some people, um, mistakenly think that this process is what's known as the transfiguration. That has to do with Jesus and his appearance to his disciples, not this thing. Uh, and again, if anybody thinks I'm getting too religious, I'm a deist. I don't believe any of this. I'm telling you what, what is believed. Because I think it's an interesting examination of modern context of faith and how faiths evolve or don't evolve as facts become known. So transubstination is a way that the church explains how the bread and wine can still smell like, taste like, be like. And if you sent it to a laboratory and said, check it out, what is it? They'd say it's bread and wine. There's no chemical change. There's no biological change. There's nothing that makes this wafer or piece of bread no longer a wafer or a piece of bread. There's no test that could be done. There's no, from anybody that would be a connoisseur of wine that could taste it and go, oh, the terroir's changed, all the way down to a bio-engineering uh, level DNA analysis of everything in it. If you had a control group and the priest did the, the consecration of the Eucharist and, and checked them side by side, they'd come out exactly the same, and the church is smart enough to know that. So what they are actually saying is that this is one of the mysteries of God. That somehow this is the case. That, that Christ, once the bread is consecrated, exists within the Eucharist as the, as in the form of his body and the wine in the form of his blood. And 
It is what it is, and that's what it is, and by faith you are to accept it. It is not symbolic. Uh, many of you that are a part of Protestant faiths that do communion often don't do it every week the way that they do in Catholic churches. You do it on certain masses, and you take it as this is a symbolic representation of the Last Supper and that the bread was always a symbolic body and the blood was always symbolic in the wine, but it's symbolic. That is not Catholic doctrine. It is literally transformed. And if you watch a Catholic Mass, if you've never been to one, it's taken very seriously. There is a, a device, a beautiful ornamental device that a large Eucharist is placed in after it's consecrated and displayed to the entire congregation. That usually that piece is usually consumed by the priest, who also blesses enough for the entire congregation. And many times in a Catholic church, you only do the bread. And the priest drinks the wine on your behalf. And some masses, like a high mass in Ukrainian Catholicism, it, both bread and wine are, are served to the entire parishioners. And yes, the small child who takes First Communion in second grade drinks actual wine. It's such a small amount, it doesn't matter. And you believe this when it's done. When it's being served, there are assistants that help the priests and or deacons that actually give the Eucharist out to the parishioners And little golden plates are held up so that if any crumb is to fall or any drip is to fall, it falls onto that plate and not onto the floor. It is then all, when it's when that's over, the, the, the priest that's you know commencing the Mass then takes all of that and takes all those plates and wipes it with a special uh, handkerchief, basically, into a chalice. And, a little, and the rest of the wine is added to that, and it's consumed by the priest so that nothing's left. If there is too much... If there is too much left over, that you, like we have a bunch of stuff now, and it's all been blessed, you can't unbless it. You can't say, okay, Jesus, leave the bread. It's, it's done. It's happened. Christ is in the bread. This is what Catholics believe if they follow Catholic doctrine. This extra Eucharist is called the Reserved Sacrament, and it sits in a small tabernacle made just for this purpose out of gold and jewels and everything precious that sits to one side of the altar. I believe it's the right side as you look at the altar, if I remember right. And then that Reserved Sacrament can be used for later Masses. It can also be used as Eucharist to be taken to the sick and the ill and the infirm in many churches Uh, set aside a specific amount in masses, specifically knowing that we have X amount of practicing uh, brothers and sisters in the faith who need this delivered to them who can't make it to church because the weekly sacrament is extremely important to the devout Catholic. I don't know how much value the history of that is, but if you want to understand other people in this world and what other people believe, this is Catholic doctrine. And a person that actually believes that doctrine, there is little that can be done to change their mind about it. Um, I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent. I, I find it completely preposterous, personally. As, as, as someone who believed it as a child, I sit back now and go, I was brainwashed as a child to believe these things. And, and I'm very glad to be free of the weight of such archaic beliefs. I don't believe that it makes any sense. Now, for those of you that think, well, that's not biblical, I will defend the Catholic decision on this. It is most certainly biblical. In both Corinthians and John, it is made very clear that doctrine of the church is that the body and blood lie within the bread and the wine, and they are really there. Anyway, there you go. That's probably a little more than you wanted to know about all that, but uh, if you ever want to know why... Catholics cling to this belief. It's because it's part of doctrine, and it's 
based in biblical teaching. Anyway, let's uh, let's take the uh, first call of the day, and I promise you we're done with religion for today. Hi, this is Rob from Georgia. I saw your request for calls on Facebook, and I'm just wondering about Pomaitos. I signed up for it a few months ago, and I'm wondering if you can give us an update on what the schedule and all is. I've been pretty busy and haven't really been uh, investigating into what I actually bought, but I just wanted to see if you could give us kind of an overview of what's going to happen over the next you know, six months and uh, what, what we need to do. Thanks a lot. Well, I will confess to something, no pun intended, toward the previous segment. Um, I almost always just take calls in the order they're received. I seldom take a call and move it up or down in the queue. Occasionally, two calls are really close or similar to each other, and I might play them back-to-back and move them then, but it is uh, 1% to 2% of the time that I move a call. I did move this one to the front of the show. Uh, it's quite a timely call. Uh, so those of you that have helped support Perma Ethos, first let me say we are so grateful to everything that everyone has been doing to help us build Perma Ethos into a community of sustainability and liberty. And uh, we have now set in concrete the date for the first uh, block of the PDC. The launch date of that will be August 8th. Uh, there was a post that went out yesterday on the Perma Ethos blog. I, in fact, wrote that post. So uh, if you have any questions, you post them there, and I'll answer them there. And I want to go brief on this, because I've always said I don't want TSP to be the Permaethos infomercial channel. Uh, and we try to do most Permaethos business at permaethos.com. But the uh, the class will start on August 8th. We will not be releasing entire chapters. We'll be releasing parts of chapters, one-half to one-third of chapters as we go. Kelly and Joe have pretty much filmed all of Chapter 1, all of Chapter 2, and have begun filming and some editing of Chapter 3. We are now at a point where we are filming and editing, editing concurrently, and so that we don't have big holes, we're not going to release everything we have edited. We're going to release slowly in the beginning, and as more and more filming is done and more and more time can be spent on editing and less on filming, and more volume is produced weekly, the amount of material will go up in our weekly releases. But for now, we have planned to do our releases on Fridays. This gives students weekends to work on the material in a full week to review the material, ask questions, etc., until we come around to the next release on the next Friday. Right now, based on our filming scheduling and our editing scheduling, we plan to have the entire PDC released by year's end. No one's ever done a PDC or permaculture design course outdoors before. It's never been done. Not the way we're doing it, on video and every bit of it being outside. So if, like, an act of God kills a week of filming, we're set back a week and there's nothing we can do. So we may be mid-January before we're done. The good news is if you are on it and you are using and working the material as it comes out, you should be able to do your design project in one day, by the way. I saw people take months to do their design for, uh, for the Jeff Lawton PDC. You should be able to do If you went to a PDC on site at somebody's location, you'd have one to one and a half days to do your entire design. You do not have to make it perfect. You just have to make it good. Right? You have to demonstrate that you've mastered the concepts. If you want to take a computer and do CGI and graphics and SketchUp and everything and take two or three weeks to do your design, you can, but you can also draw it out, do everything the way you're taught in the PDC, take pictures of it, upload it for us, and we will look at it and say, yes, the students mastered the stuff. So that means that anybody that wants to, by January of 2015, should be PDC certified. And that means you can start going forward and doing all the things that come with that certification in 2015. Um, 
We would like to do it quicker, but the reality is Joe was tasked with get the farm up and running, develop a plan for going forward in uh, developing production schedules for next year so we have something to market next year, farm product to market. Uh, by the way, build a parking lot, uh, get some basic earthworks done, deal with the road issues, put in some dams, get some fencing in. I mean, take care of all the staff members, and it was just like a dog pile on Joe. But it was what we had to do. So we've now gotten to a point where Jesse and Mike have projects through the end of the year that are specifically based around st different livestock, chickens, rabbits, pigs, etc., and saying, here's, here's your budget, here's your time, here's what we want you to do, run this and get a cost analysis so that when we hit 2015 and we increase the head count of this, these animals, we know exactly what our cost and our, our bridge to market is. And those are very clear directives. The housing, most of it's in place. The Wolfer scheduling's in place. So everything's now solid enough that we can just say, Joe, none of this exists to you anymore at all. Do, thou shalt go forth and do the PDC and focus on educational programs. And that's what thou shalt do. And that's what Joe is doing. That means we can go much faster now. But there's still, after a block is filmed, there's, for one hour of, of film, you know, Kelly might be doing four, six, eight hours of editing for you see the final product. And remember, Nick, and, Nick Ferguson and I will be doing all the Q&A. So there will probably be as much Q&A as there is film. So the Q&A is part of the PDC as well. So as you're watching your courses, if you don't understand something, write it down and make and get to a crystal clear question, and you'll be posting it in the back end where you're taking your course, and Nick and I will be answering the questions. For everybody that's not with Permi Ethos and doing the PDC, Let me just say, I'm sorry I had to take that time, but this is important, and it's my number one way to reach the majority of the people that are. Big news, though, as well. Permaethos.tv is live. It's in beta, and to reward Class 1 of the PDC, they're the only ones that can see the new premium videos as they come out now. If you're in Class 1, you should have gotten an email that tells you about Permaethos.tv uh, with a password. The password's the same for all the videos. If you're a class member and you have not gotten that email... And I can verify you're a class member. Just email me, and within a few days at most, I will get back to you and give you the password so that you can participate in the beta. Um, real quick on permaethos.tv beta, since so much work's going into the PDC right now, because it has to, because we're talking 50 hours of video just for that part of the PDC, and multiply that by 10 to get your total number of hours in editing, okay? The, the stuff that's going on permaethos.tv has to be stuff that can be done quickly without tons of editing. When the PDC is done, Kelly can really turn to ramping that up. That's why we're doing it as a free beta to all Class 001 members. With that, let's get into a question that applies to everybody. Hi, Jack. This is Mason in Georgia, MSB member and permaethos founder. I have a question about transplanting established blueberries. I've got four blueberries that I've planted uh, from five-gallon buckets last I guess two falls ago, and they're just not getting enough sun, and I was wondering about moving them to a different location on my property, what would be the best time to move them, and what would my procedure be about how far around blueberry bushes should I expect to dig, and what kind of success can I expect? If you have any other ideas for how to make the move of these blueberries successful, I'd be glad to hear them. Love the show, Jack. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is actually really easy from a best practices uh, situation. This is what I would recommend. Whenever you're transplanting anything deciduous, wait till the plant goes dormant. 
when, and that means the leaves turn color and fall off. With evergreens, doing it during a cool part of the year is the best course, but this is a deciduous plant. Blueberries drop their leaves. So wait until it drops its leaves, or even if it's dropped most of its leaves. All the leaves are turned color. Most of the leaves are off. Dig it up and preserve as much of the roots as you can at that point. Okay? As much of the roots as you can. But you're probably not going to get them all. Try to dig out around, you know, Pretend that it's a, it's a blueberry bush, I understand, but pretend it's a small tree, and then that means there's a drip line, just like a tree. So the outer edge of the bush, so try to dig around the outside and up from under and clean out as much as you can if you're in dirt that you can work with. Try not to hack the roots any more than you have to, and as you find roots that have to be cut, the best thing to do is to cut them with a pair of pruners. So you cut them with a sharp pair of pruners so they cut clean. You're going to get some roots that are busted, torn, etc. Once you get the plant completely out of the ground, hose it off with, with a hose and get as much of the roots exposed as you can. At that point, look for any roots that are damaged or broken, and above where they're damaged or broken, prune them off. Again, sharp pruners. If you're pruning it and it ends up with like a rough cut, they're not sharp enough. Good quality sharp pruners. Prune off all those edges of roots. It would probably be a good idea at that point to give it a soak. And if you want to, you could soak it in, let's say, per gallon of water, one drop of a, a product called Super Thrive. This is not an organic product. It is a product that has plant hormones in it. But it is a fabulous product. And let's face it, we're dealing with transplant shock. We're, it's like giving a person who's actually sick medication. All right, is a way to look at it. So you don't put them on the medication for the rest of their life, but... A couple drops, of, and just tiny drops of this stuff per gallon would be all you need. Soak them in there for about an hour and plant them into your new location. When you plant them into your new location, same way you'd always plant bare root plants. Dig a hole, plant them in the native soil they're going to be growing in, and any compost, amendments, mulches put on the surface, not in the hole with them. That's probably the best way to do that. And if you do it during the time of year when the plant's dormant, it's probably going to break bud just fine and grow beautifully for you in the next season. It's, it's the perfect time as just as it's going dormant because that's when it's going to dump its energy into its roots. So if you can catch it just as the leaves are falling off, it's going into dormancy. It's best because the roots that you lose, then you'll, you'll, you'll prevent all that energy being lost in them And that energy will then go into developing the roots that you've been able to retain. So I would try to get it when it's dropped like 50% of its leaves. You can do it when it's totally dormant. It's okay. But if you're trying to maximize the root development through the winter, because it will, you think the tree's done, or you think the bush is done, it's growing roots in that off season. That's what it's doing with all the energy that, that comes out of the leaves and out of the cambium and out of the, the, the limbs and falls into the roots. It produces roots, and it gets them all ready to go. And then in spring, when it's getting ready to bud out, man, it just starts going ape. So the more energy you can preserve, the better. So if you got it when it was, I'd say, 50% leaf drop, and all the leaves have either turned color or brown, and that tree really is going to sleep at that point, that would be the optimum time. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, quick question about propagating wineberries and black raspberries. Um, I have a wild patch of both on my property and one new um, increased production. Um, both of them are phenomenal um, for eating jams and 
and stuff and didn't know the best way to, to grow more from what I currently have. Um, appreciate that. Um, this is Josh from Pennsylvania. Like, this is super easy. Blackberries, wineberries, and other brambles um, reproduce three ways in nature. The first one is the crown just expands. It just keeps it bigger, 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 and it, it starts building its own identity and expands outward. That takes a long time. It's not really useful to you, but we know that. The second way is there are seeds in blackberries and wineberries and raspberries. Birds poop them out. They grow somewhere else. The reproduction rate, though, the percentage that actually take root and grow Very low, and it's a slow process for it to go from a little seed to a new plant. The third is called layering, and the way this occurs in nature, and you need to understand something about blackberries and raspberries and wineberries and brambles. Most of the species, they grow a cane the first year, all right? And you prune that cane, and then the second year, that cane fruits, and new canes are coming up from the crown. After that cane fruits and it goes dormant the next year, it dies. So what I'm going to tell you next needs to be done with first-year canes, canes that haven't fruited, or the cane is going to die and it won't do you any good. So as the second-year canes are coming up all weighted down with fruit and the plant is sending up all these first-year really green, flexible canes and animals and people and things are going through and picking and eating berries and trampling them, some of the first-year canes that are really flexible and green end up on the ground, and they end up with dirt and debris and things on top of them. And since they're a first-year cane and they're going to live the next year, where they're in contact with the soil, they form roots. That root forms a new crown, and next year the cane that was attached, if it survives, will fruit, a little bit of fruit on the ground or what have you, But the crown that was formed by its root system will set up all first-year canes, and now a new plant is born one cane away from its mother. And year after year, bramble patches can get huge with just the plants basically walking in whatever direction is most conducive to them and forming new plants. How do you harness that? You go out to your wineberry, your blackberry, your raspberry, whatever, and you look for a first-year cane which will be, it'll look different, lighter colored leaves, and it won't have fruited. You dig a hole in the ground, a couple inches deep and a few inches long, and bend the new first-year cane over and bury the tip in the ground. Sometimes you have to add a little bit of weight or whatever. Take really good care of that one. Make sure that area stays watered. You can do this with 100 canes if you want to in a single season, if you have enough plants to work with. When the plant goes dormant, Go through and cut all those canes in half. Now, you don't need a lot on the side with the roots that you've rooted, and that cane's going to fruit. So you might leave two-thirds of it on the main plant if it'll stand for you, or maybe cut it in half or whatever, but leave some on the main plant because that's going to be a fruiting cane next year. right? The, the cane that went in the ground with the roots, now dig that up and then plant it wherever you want it. And next year when it when it buds out, That cane might produce a little bit of fruit, but it's a small cane. But the root crown you've now created is going to send up a whole bunch of first-year canes and establish a new plant. And then in the next year, those canes will fruit for you. And you can make literally thousands of blackberries, raspberries, etc. Now, some people just go into a very mature plant with a big crown and just cut out of the roots of a first-year cane. And just pull it out when it's dormant and just plant it. Some people even do it when they're, when they're active. 
Another way you can do it is you can go take a first-year cane while it's green, in the green stage, and you can cut it and put it in a, a under a mister system and root it that way. But this air layering of just bending the tip over and, and putting dirt on it works really good. The funny thing is if you're selling these, like because you can do this with domestics, you can do it with wild, it doesn't matter. If the person pays attention, they're going to be like, what's going on? Because there's going to be something not quite right looking, even though it'll work perfectly with the one you've tipped. Do you know what it is? The leaves will be upside down. Yep, your cane will have the leaves pointing down instead of up because you've tipped the end with roots and then the bottom is what's growing up out of the ground. It won't matter because that cane's going to die next year and everything else will look right again. Just a little oddity I thought I'd point out. Uh, it's called tipping in the uh, blackberry and, and, and raspberry world. And you can do it with wilds or domestics. Let's take another call. And it's again, it's the easiest way and the most reliable way because that cane is supported by the mother plant the entire time you're rooting the other end of it. You could, if you wanted your canes to be upright, bury the center and then cut the back off and pull it out of the ground. But usually with the length of the canes, it's easier to bend the t do the tip. Let's uh, like take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Jake from Murfreesboro, also known as Prepper Survivor on Zello. Question about chickens, if you're still taking them. Uh, two questions. First, how do you tell when a uh, chicken goes broody? What are the symptoms? How long does it last? Things like that. And then second, same thing for molting. How do you tell how long does it last uh, before and after the process, et cetera? Anyway, I appreciate it. Thanks. Um, both of these are dramatically easy. You won't miss it. You will know. Um, let's start out with brooding because a lot of the modern breeds and even quite a few of the heritage breeds like, say, Rhode Island Reds are just not very broody birds. And it's because they've been raised mostly for egg production. And if you want eggs, you don't want a broody bird. You want a bird out eating and laying a new egg every day. You don't want them sitting on, you know, laying a, a, a nest full of eggs and sitting on them. Uh, if you want more chickens, that's great because you don't have to do any of the work. We talked about that in the chicken show recently. But if you have a broody hen, she's going to make a nest area, and she's going to pull some feathers and stuff in that nest. She's going to sit there, and she's not going to leave. She's going to stay there. And she's wanting to brood. Now, how long does it last? There's people that have lost chickens that have gone broody because they, they don't give them something to do with the broodiness, and you can't get them to quit. Sometimes they do it for a couple weeks, and if you keep taking eggs away from them, they give up. Um, there's all different ways to get a chicken off a brood, um, but I'll tell you what the easiest way is. Put some damn eggs underneath it and let her, let her hatch some chickens, and when the little chicks come out, she'll be happy to be a mama chicken. That's why she's doing it. It's, mu it's maternal instinct. So when you take a chicken that's gone broody and you try to pull her out of brooding without her actually completing what that entails... It's like trying to get a woman who's got a baby to not be a mother to it in some ways. Or a woman that's pregnant to not begin kind of the nesting thing and starting to think about her family and all. A chicken is not a human. They don't have anywhere near the rationale that a human being does. That actually, though, means they're a little bit heavier driven by instinct. So if you have a bird that just starts sitting and won't move, she's broody. That's why she's doing that. A lot of times, too, if you have a place where your birds lay, she won't go there. She'll find another spot. Sometimes a chicken will disappear. 
You're just like, I lost her. She's gone. And if you have a bigger property, you'll be convinced you lost her. Assuming raccoons or foxes or something doesn't find her, though, one day you may see her come waddling back up and peep, peep, peep behind her because she's gone off to be away. When they're broody, they like to get away from their other chickens. So if you have a chicken that starts to go broody and you want to harness that, and you want her to raise some chicks, it's great to find a place you can move her to that's quiet and not as frequented by the other chickens and protected, and make sure she has food and water near her. But you will not be confused by broody behavior. You'll know it. She'll sit, and she won't want to move. And she'll get upset if you try to move her. Wouldn't you expect that a woman who had a baby would get upset if you tried to take a baby away from her? This is this is how that bird's thinking now. Molting, when your birds look like crap, they're molting. I mean, that's that's the best way. You, you know the basic timeline for molting, first of all. So you know when to expect it. So birds traditionally molt at 18 months. So if you got your birds, let's say, in January of this year, you know that by... June, not of, of next year, but the following year, at 18 months, they're going to molt. And then they're going to molt every 12 months after that. They have to. It's how their body works. And what happens is their feathers start falling out. They get, and, and the only term for it with hens is they get bitchy. Birds that were normally like pet chickens you can just pick up and hang out on you, they're, they're bitchy. They're not happy. You wouldn't be either if all your hair was falling out and having to regrow at one time and falling out in clumps. And if you really relied on your hair to keep cool and keep mites off of you and dust bath and all, but you just start seeing feathers just fall out of them. You see bare patches of skin, and they either stop laying or they lay very infrequently. And the reason is all that energy that used to make eggshells, etc., is now going toward regrowing feathers, which is a lot of work, and it's a lot of energy. And a lot of calories and nutrients and minerals have got to go into growing brand new feathers. So you'll know, because they'll just start dropping feathers, and they'll look back. They'll look like something's wrong with them. Um, but they'll be otherwise healthy, but probably a little more temperamental. And again, you would too, if you were going through this. It takes about a six-week process, and you factor that into your laying requirements and understand when they start... Just plan on when they start molting, you're going to go six weeks without any eggs. And any eggs you get are a bonus. So it makes a lot of sense to stagger some birds about six months apart from each other. Or at least eight to ten weeks apart from each other. So as one's coming out of its molting cycle, the next one's going in. And understand, that after the first molting cycle, egg productivity goes down, but egg size usually goes up a little bit. But it's still pretty good. For a commercial egg producer, off with their heads. As they, the best thing to do if you're a commercial producer that you're making these thin profit margins on eggs is to know when the 18 months is and at like 17 and a half, <laughs> coal. For the homesteader, two and two year old birds are producing enough eggs that they're worth having around. Two and a half years, you're going from productive member of your homestead to pet. You're feeding a pet at two and a half years. It's still a slightly productive pet. When they hit three and a half, I'm, I'm, only, I'm saying when they hit four and a half, I'm sorry, if you get an egg, you're lucky. People say, I have one, she's six years old and still lays three times a week. Yeah, well, I knew an old, I know, knew an old guy that could walk a tightrope and kick your ass with kung fu, but it's the exception, not the rule. 
So that's how you know, and that's how you choose when. And I pretty much have built my flock designed with an understanding that we're going to get it up off the ground. We're going to get some eggs for home use. We're going to go into a, a small-scale you know, commercial productivity, and we're going to just keep having them come in six months behind each other and increasing the flock size. And after the second molt, they got to go into the stew pot. Let's take another call. Good question, Jake. Hey, Jack. This is Brad in Virginia, uh, MSB supporter and Permagethos founding member. I just wanted to thank you for your recent episodes on keeping chickens. Uh, my family and I recently got our first flock, uh, six Rhode Island Reds and one Bard Rock Hen, and the eggs are rolling out. And, uh, you know, with our very busy lifestyle, the, the coop, and, coop and run with your dead simple fodder system works great. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, I haven't heard much recently about the reluctant spouse, but what I can tell you is that over time, um, you know, my wife thought I've always been kind of off for doing the whole sustainability thing. But, you know, with the chickens in the picture now, my, she gets the biggest kick out of going to get fresh eggs from the coop every morning uh, and afternoon and whenever they get laid. So uh, it's great, and last weekend we spent a lot of time together harvesting cucumbers out of the garden and then pressure canning them, making pickles, doing all that good stuff. So anyways, uh, sometimes it just takes uh, one little thing to get the spouse to turn the corner and um, you know keep on that good path of self-sufficiency. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, keep up the good work, man. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. Yeah, I think this is actually a great call because it helps understand, well, how do you deal with a reluctant spouse? And I think the way you do it has a lot to do with what we talked about with Mexican Joe yesterday when it's like, where do I start with skill sets? And start with something you find fun, cool, or interesting and do that one thing and learn to do it well. Well, if you have a reluctant spouse, see if you can find one thing that has to do with homesteading and preparedness that they think is interesting. And even if you have like a list of 20 things you want to do, And the thing that they want to do that they have in common with you is number 20 and, and, and 19 away from being number one with you. Do that one. I mean, understand when you're dealing with reluctant spouses with this stuff is you're asking your spouse to participate in something that they're not really interested in at the time. So if they'll meet you, I don't care, it's not meet you halfway. Right? We meet halfway when we both want to accomplish something. We're going to go to a concert together, and we don't both want to drive the whole way, but we both want to go to the concert, so we meet halfway and leave one of the vehicles behind to take one the rest of the way to the concert to save us both time, but we both want to get there. This isn't halfway with reluctant spouses. This is any of the way. So if we looked at, if they did number one with you, they're meeting you all the way there. And if they did number 10 with you, they're meeting you halfway there. And if they're going to do number 20 with you, they're meeting you 1% of the way there. Take your ass 99% of the way down to where they're at and meet them there. And do all your other stuff too. But meet them wherever they'll meet you. And you might find them going, that's kind of interesting there. Because I'll tell you what my wife likes. When we started this... She's like, whatever you want to do, honey, you've always provided for the house. I don't care what you do, but I'm going to grow my flowers out front, and I'm going to do my thing, and you do your thing, and that's just the way it is. And once in a while, she'll say, I'll help you with some work, but it's not like I want to do it. It's like, you're out there working so hard, let me help you a little bit. Right? But now, when there's stuff to pick, 
it's like she, it's like she's on the beach picking up seashells. Like, what can I find next? You know, when we grew all the jalapenos in Arkansas, she was picking the red ones, and it was like a game. She loves taking care of the birds. She loves her ducks. She loves the chickens. She gets a little tired of feeding them once in a while because she's carrying the heavy feet around. But overall, she likes to be out there with them and talk to them and play with them and stuff like that. And, you know, recently she said to me, thank you for making this place so beautiful. I, I don't, it's not there yet, but it's now where I can see what you're doing and I understand what you're doing and I know what it's going to look like. That's a big step. And when she tells me, you know, I was going through our preps, and we don't have enough of this, we don't have enough of that, and by the way, we don't eat these things, but they store really well, and they're cheap. We should have a bunch of that in case we ever need to feed anybody. Yeah, but it takes time. I do this for a living, and I am now at a point where I can provide a good living for my household with it, and it still takes time. So my advice is if they'll meet you 1% of the way on one thing, carry your ass to 99%. little update on this call, just... To show how it works, I got an email from him today that said his wife just did a posting to Facebook, and he sent me a screenshot of it. And she said, I think my, my husband has actually convinced me that having chickens and getting eggs is fun. And there was pictures of the eggs and stuff like that. So it does work. It just might not be chickens with you. But I'll tell you a secret about the chicken. The chicken usually does work as long as you house it in a good way that it's not on the porch because if it's on the porch pooping she's not going to like it but if you get chickens and you just don't make her be involved at all in fact just let it be like they're at sooner or later something about little puffball chickens and women and the antics they do and all it almost always wins them over again as long as they're not pooping on the car the house the furniture you know the outdoor furniture the table the the porch When they do that, it makes them mad, guys. Anyway, good call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Matt from Vermont. I was hoping you could talk about your strategies for using stop-loss orders to protect profits uh, in the stock market. With the market in the bubble that it appears to be, highest levels ever, and not lots of reasons for it, um, I've set them up, basically thinking, okay, you know, I'll let it fall. 10%, but I know that there's more to it than just setting it up, setting them up once. Uh, I thought maybe you could explain to the audience what they are uh, and how you uh, use them or recommend using them uh, in a more sophisticated way, moving them up, how often you use them, etc. Thanks, Jack. So much for you. Bye. This is a pretty quick and simple one from my perspective, but I have to tell you again, I don't give financial advice, and I'm not telling you what to do here. I'm just telling you what we do. When we buy stock, we immediately say, hey, um, there's a point at which we need to re rethink and reevaluate this, and that's generally if this thing tanks 20%, um, we need to get the hell out of it. So we'll initially install a stop loss at 20%. And we'll keep an eye on what's going on with that stock. And if something doesn't look right, we may bail long before 20% and reallocate. But if it plunges 20%, we want out. In general, we do a pretty good job, though, of picking solid income-producing dividend stocks. And... We'll watch that stock. So now let's say that stock goes up 10%. Well, 
I'm probably going to leave my stop loss at that point at 20% under the purchase price. I'm still only protecting my purchase price at that point. If I'm going to take a 10% gain at some point, I'm going to take it right then. I don't want to move that up and, and, and chase the stop loss at that point because if I put it as a 10% stop loss at this point, basically I'm going to sell it for what I paid for it at that point if it drops down. So I'm still early on with this stock. And now let's say it's gone up over time and it's now 20% over what I paid for it. At that point, I'm probably going to say, you know what, I want to lock in a, in a gain. And I'll probably put about a 15% stop loss on it this time. So I'll reduce my stop loss now. So I'm going to lock in at least a 5% gain. But I, I want you to understand something about a stop loss. A stop loss to me is something really bad happens and I trigger the sale uh, because I wasn't paying, I was on vacation or something like that, especially in this early stage with the stock. Now, let's say that stock goes up more and now I'm at a point where I've got 30% gains realized in the stock. I'm going to keep chasing it with about a 15% stock loss, stop loss from there. And it's just a fail safe. And by the time, let's say that stock is up 40% from what I paid for it, I might even collar it up with a 10% stop loss. It all depends on what's going on. All I'm trying to do is make sure that I don't lose my gains. And if there's some kind of meltdown going on or something like that, that I'm triggering a sale. Now, People say, what if something goes wacky crazy and it falls through the floor? You can set up an order that if it goes below a point, don't sell it as well. That's something to talk to your broker about. I don't see that generally the way stocks fall. And if a stock falls that fast, you got problems anyway. And the whole point here is to just capture your gains if something begins to wane on you. Do we run stop losses on every security that we hold? No. No. Um, but if there's a stock that we really think is still a good long-term play, we really think it's still worth holding, but we want to just make sure, hey, you know what? At this point, we're 50% up in this stock. I don't want to lose those gains. You know, we'll throw a 15, depending on it, 10% stop loss and we'll keep watching it and if it keeps going up we'll just keep chasing trailing stop loss behind it and I'll tell you at some point we're going to go okay this stock is now reaching a point where we don't see real heavy gains in it in the future it's done its business for us we've made a good consistent return on it I think we have a better horse over here let's 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 capture those gains and let's move it over. Or we may sell part of that security and leave some of it there and move some of it over and reallocate it. It all depends. But a stop loss is really, it really is, to make sure that you lock in a gain or protect yourself from total loss. And you've got to do it with some level of strategy behind it. You don't just, every stock I buy, I'm going to throw 20% stop loss on. It's, it, it doesn't really make sense if it's done that way because all you do is sell stock for 20% less than you paid for it if you just use it as an autopilot thing. It's a redundancy. It's a backup of a backup. You should be paying attention and adjusting and reallocating things as you go. Um, let's take another call. Howdy. I'm a fellow Texan from the Panhandle. I was listening to your uh, caller feedback where you were talking to the guy who was claiming to be Special Forces Ranger and all that. And you were commenting on the purpose for all of these wars being uh, corporate profit. Uh, I, I'm a big listener of podcasts because I drive a truck, and well, I don't want to just 
not think about anything. And uh, I listened to Art of Man as well, and he was interviewing a, a guy that talks about, you know, manliness, masculinity, because uh, that's what that podcast is about also. The guy made a point that, you know, small bands of men who are thinking are bad for corporate profit. And so they use everything they can in order to program men to be whatever they can make the most money off of, except for the guys that don't buy that. And, and it's, it occurs to me that they end up in the military. I was in the military myself. And what do they do? They take small bands of men who improvise, adapt, and overcome and train them to do that, train them to be physically fit and train them to think tactically and then put them together into small bands in order to go and disrupt somebody else's supply line. So it seems to me that there's some sort of connection there. Uh, anyway, love your love your show. Uh, thanks for letting me be on this show. If the call actually makes it, and uh, keep up the good work. Also, maybe I don't agree with you 100% of the time, but that's a good thing because if you agree with somebody 100% of the time, either they're selling you a load of goods or uh, they're just agreeing with you. And that's uh, no way to live. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot. First, let me just say, it scares the shit out of me when somebody says they always agree with me because I worry that they're not thinking for themselves. Uh, when they disagree, I might tell them they're wrong, and I wouldn't believe what I believed if I thought I was wrong. So it's a natural response. I d disagree with you. But when it's pointed out I'm wrong, I, I usually dig into it and figure out how wrong I was and figure out how to learn from it. Uh, but I'm, so I'm glad you disagree. Now, I don't completely agree with your assessment here, and I do want to rewind just a second. Rewind in... Uh, The caller that you're referring to did not claim to be anything. He claimed to know somebody who claimed to be these things. And I did question it because I tell you what, and, and sometimes it may just be he was a civilian talking about a military person and got terminology wrong. Somebody pointed out in the blog, if you talk to people that were a ranger, they never say I was an airborne ranger. They almost never say that. I was a ranger. If you're saying I'm an airborne ranger is like saying I'm a two-legged man. Right, unless you're missing a leg, and then it's obvious. Well, it, it pretty much, you know, is a given that uh, a man has two legs, right? Or a chicken with feathers, right? I mean, you wouldn't say I have a chicken with feathers; you say I have a chicken. So, airborne ranger, while technically accurate, and there's some cadences that use that. Um, to tell you the truth, rangers look at jump school as being kind of a school anybody can get through, and ranger school being something that's tough. Um. They, they really do. Like, airborne is just, that's just a skill. Being a ranger, that's a life. All right, so they don't usually make a real big deal about the fact that they're airborne. And it does bother me when I hear people claiming to be every dadgone thing that's possible in the military. I was a Navy SEAL. I was with uh, SEAL Team 6. And everybody that says they were Special Forces was with 7th Group. I mean, so anyway, yeah, there's all that. Now, the... The concept I think that you're, you're espousing here is true in essence. So the concept is the independent thinker that can work together with other people and use critical thinking, thought analysis, independent thought, develop solutions is dangerous to the establishment. No doubt I agree with you on that. In the military, special operators and specialized skill sets that run in small groups that are given autonomy and given missions and said and basically told as long as what you do is not immoral or unethical or violates your orders, do whatever you need to get it done and you go do that. Those guys fit the mold you're talking about. 
the mainstream military does not. If you want an example of herd behavior, look at a standard U.S. military company, right? And I don't mean company like corporate company. I mean a company like Alpha Company, Bravo Company, you know. That's the Delta Company. That's what that's a company is what you call it. It's a group of platoons. Each platoon is made up of squads. A certain number of platoons equal a company. A certain number of companies equal a you know, battalion. And then you've got a brigade. And there's this. That's how that structure works. So when you look at infantry or just people doing their job in the military in any of the logistical areas and all, they actually want you to be extremely conformist. Just enough independent thought that you don't get stuck on shit and get it completed, but your training is the same. Every single soldier gets the same basic training. Now, if you're, if you're infantry, you'll get more of it. But the basic initial entry training, IET, is the same for everybody. Basic rifleman, rifle marksmanship. You go in the army to be a cook, you're still going to throw two live hand grenades. Back when I was in, before they wussified some things, you was going to get bayonet training. Right, and it, I'm sure that it works the same way for Air Force and Navy and Marine Corps. You know, the Marine Corps says everybody's a rifleman first. Army actually believes that too, by the way. So you are indoctrinated now. Inside that indoctrination, there's two ways that they take people and put them into specialized roles. One is if you score really high and they know you're a high IQ individual, they will put you into jobs like a linguist, a cryptology, or things like that, that harness that potential and give you something so involved to do that you'll be so focused on it, you don't have time to question what else is going on. They compartmentalize you. Or, if you have a certain aptitude and an intelligence to go with it, then we're looking at Let's make this guy special forces. Let's make this guy Navy SEAL. Or at least let's, let's see if he qualifies. Let's put him through the test. Now, Rangers are kind of, so I'm piss some Rangers off. But the truth is, Rangers are kind of in between the two. Let me put it to you this way. If I had an enemy air station and I wanted a group of crack soldiers to go in there, kill a bunch of people, and take over that air station. But they are defended with a high number of troops. Uh, maybe they've got some artillery or some armory. Uh, it, is a, it is a fortification, and I need somebody to take it down. I will send an Army Ranger Battalion in there, and they will do it up, and they will kick ass. But they will work like a big unit. I'm not going to send, if I have a brain as a commander, Delta Force to do that. Delta Force does not take over an airport. The Rangers are like a crack infantry force. The best of the best from the infantry standpoint. Now, they do a lot more than basic infantry does. That's what the best of the best would do. If you're a Ranger and you're pissed off about this, I'm sorry. That's Ranger units are rather large. Ranger units are combat forces for built for force-on-force -force engagement. Special forces operate, and, and, and that's why they're in this... That you you got to think a little bit more to be a ranger than just to be a, an 11 Bravo bullet catcher. You do. Special forces, though, are the guys you take four of them, put them in a country that no one knows them in, and say, go organize a rebel force. Go buy off the locals. Go speak to them in their own language. These are the guys you're talking about. Or these highly specialized military occupational specialties, or MOSs. It's not unique to the military, though. 
The power establishment does a very good job, and this is basically a fascist principle, of what's called class division. So you have your upper income, your lower income, your middle income, etc. You have your educated, your uneducated. Every way you can slice and divide a society, they'll use it to their advantage, and they act as a mediator in the division. So they create the division, and they mediate the division. This is how you control society. But now, no matter how you're chopping people up, whether they go in the military or not, there are people that are critical thinkers that analyze what's going on and question things. And and the the power elite do one of three things with them. The number one thing they try to do with them is harness it. How can we angle this person? into a position where they can do all the critical thinking they want, they can talk to everybody they want, most of the people around them are idiots and aren't going to listen to them anyway, but what they do will be beneficial to us. High-end paid positions, running companies, whatever. That's number one. Another thing they'll do with the critical thinker that won't play ball in some way by just accepting the role of the upper-level critical thinker in some sort of profession is ostracize them. They're crazy, they're nuts, they're tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. Wait a minute, I didn't bring up any conspiracy theorists. Yeah, you did, you're nuts, right? So there's ostracization. And then there's full-on co-opting. And this is where certain people that weren't part of the elite are basically taken in like apprentices and made part of the elite. And they usually are hand-selected from people who go into that, that, that second tier I talked about, that level where they have this profession, whether it's military or otherwise, doesn't matter, and they're really, really good, and they're running a company or something like that. And I can tell you at least one person that I know in my life who I have no reason to doubt that was made that offer and turned it down. I will not tell you who that person is, but some of you have heard me use his name. And at the time, he was worth about $60 million dollars which is chump change to the power elite, but it's you're getting on the radar. And he was sat down and talked to by several individuals, and this is not conspiracy theory, that basically says, you come in with us, you understand the role of being truly powerful and truly wealthy, you understand how to harness that and how to use people, and we will make you even more than you are. Or, go on with your own life, And this offer never happened. And the people he was talking to were people that were worth billions. And he chose not to get involved because everything went up on his neck that these people are not good people. And it wasn't that bluntly phrased, but it, it led there. And that led this individual to start researching a lot of things that people call conspiracy theories, but more about the power elite structure. And, and today... He will tell you, based on still having some contacts and still knowing what's going on and still having kind of an open door if he wanted it, that a lot of the things that you think can't possibly be true about the people that actually control things are. And I believe 100% that this is the case in society today, that there is a certain level at which, if you want to get beyond it, you have to be part of the club. And as George Carlin said, it's a big club and you're not in it. And I have to say that if, if, if for some reason, in some way, that I ever get enough on the radar that that deal's ever offered to me, I have an answer. 
that I can give without a word. It involves my right hand and one of my fingers. You can figure that out for yourself. Anyway, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is D.H. from Colorado's Western Slope. My question is whether any of the following financial concepts or instruments would be impossible using Bitcoin. Fractional reserve banking, derivatives like options, CDOs, etc., or interest-bearing instruments like bonds. Background. Most fiat currencies expand by fractional reserve and have to expand so that a debtor can pay off $105 to clear a $100 principal loan. But if Bitcoin does not expand, how would that work for fractional reserve or loans? Would the loaner end up just having all the money in the end? Interested to hear your concepts. Thanks. Bye. That's an interesting question. It opens up a ton of worm cans, but... Let's start out with there's no reason we couldn't have a, a debt in Bitcoin. You borrow 10 Bitcoins from me, and I say you owe me 11 Bitcoins in return. Right? It's a 10% interest rate, payable over five years, flat 10%, not 10% annual. You have five years to give me 11 Bitcoins. No reason. You can't do that. All you have to do is, as you return the Bitcoins to me, you have to generate at least one extra Bitcoin in value to be able to do that somehow in the marketplace. So, interest on a, a capped commodity is not impossible to pay. Interest on a, on a non-capped commodity that you just keep making more of is impossible to pay without destroying the currency. If we actually paid off the national debt, there'd be no money left. That's how it works. As the currency inflates through debt, therefore it, 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 it deflates through the repayment of debt. And the more you pay off, the less money there is. Because you have to make it with debt. Bitcoin's not made out of debt. Bitcoin's made out of an algorithm with a finite amount, and then the market determines its value through the exchange of Bitcoin. The more people that use it, the less coins per user there are, and the more power the coin has. It's a basic deflation rate is what you're looking at with Bitcoin. It's become stronger We fractionalize the smaller and smaller pieces of it, just like you would with gold. Only so much comes out of the ground. So the, the, the more people using gold, the less gold there is for everybody, the more a small piece buys. That's how Bitcoin works. But you could still loan somebody gold and have them pay you back plus a little bit more gold. It comes from somewhere else in the market. Fractional reserve out the freaking window. Bitcoin cannot work with fractional reserve. It is impossible. Because the bank doesn't hold the reserve, they loan against the reserve. That's what most people understand. So the bank, make it simple, has $1,000. And they're in a 10% reserve. You'd say, well, they can loan out $900. And they hold $100 in reserve, 10% reserve. Uh-uh-uh-uh, new. They'll loan out $9,000, 90 percent of so that the actually they'll loan out ten thousand dollars and hold a thousand as a reserve hold all the money in reserve and where does that other nine thousand dollars come where does that ten thousand dollars come from actually it's all created well you can't do that with bitcoin you can't create new bitcoins you have to mine them or get somebody to give them to you or spend them with you so you could not do fractional reserve you could do reserve banking true reserve banking would be like this My bank has a thousand bitcoins. My people who are in my bank receive a small interest payment and they understand that I make my money true banking the way people think banks work and they don't really work. I loan out their money. I charge an interest rate. 
I get some interest, I give them part of the interest. So we're a 50% reserve bank. Not fractional reserve, 50% reserve bank. That would mean if I have 1,000 bitcoins, I can lay, loan out up to 500 at any one time, and members of the economy can pay me back, and then I pay an interest rate to my, my depositors. It probably wouldn't get used that way, but it could. It definitely could. Does that make sense? I hope so. So now, then we look at, well, what about a bond in bitcoins? It would work the same way, but there's definitely a debt cap with Bitcoin. Because every time money's loaned, it goes into somebody else's hands, and you're holding a debt back plus more. right? So the, the reason you have a hard time understanding this when you're trying to compare it to fractional reserve is it works so much differently. So what you would think is, well, if I've loaned you 1,000 Bitcoins, and you owe me 1,100 back, back Those hundred have to be created for that debt to be repaid. Not in a true value-for-value value exchange. Because you can earn the hundred for, for developing websites, let's say, for people that paid you for it. And when you pay me back, I'm probably going to spend it on something else. So that hundred bitcoins can go through paying off multiple debts or buying multiple things. The value comes from the economy with bitcoin. It's so counterintuitive. You can't make... More money with money. You have to create value so that somebody will exchange the representation of value in Bitcoin with you. So no fractional reserve. But almost anything else you can think of you could do with money, you could do with Bitcoin. But when you start thinking about banking and reserve banking and all, here's the reality. Bitcoin is not designed to work in the banking system. It's designed to eliminate banking. It's designed so that you don't need a bank. It's designed to run in an economy, not in a bank system. Does that mean that there'll never be a currency like Bitcoin that won't do this? I believe world governments will alter the Bitcoin protocol and create their own coins, and some will do so in a way that will work with fractional reserve. But you'd have the backing of the country. And some will create almost a clone of Bitcoin, and they will sell to the world marketplace. We don't do that with ours. We don't do that with ours. But they may create a higher cap on the total coins and a longer timeline to when they're extracted. So there is some room for inflation as part of financial management. But any virtual currency that actually locks the Bitcoin model is going to follow a path. Heavy inflation, stabilization, long-term deflation. That's what it's going to do, unless people lose confidence and don't use it. As long as it's used, at the beginning, it's going to be very easy to mine, and a lot of it's going to come into the market. As more and more is mined, it gets harder and harder. This is how the algorithm, to, to pull another one out. So therefore, the supply stabilizes. And as it stabilizes, the, the currency develops a stable value. And then, as more and more people use it, assuming it gets used, and the economy around it grows, the currency gets stronger and it's fractionalized, not fractional reserve, but fractionalized, cut into smaller pieces. So you're using a, a tenth or a twentieth or a hundredth or a millionth of a Bitcoin to buy something. So that means the individual Bitcoin becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And as it does, it's a deflationary curve. So that means that putting money away and saving it You don't need a bank to pay you interest. 
by being diligent and saving your money, you increase in value over time. But it's designed for individuals to exchange value. It's not designed to favor the corporatocracy or the financial elite. It just isn't. Anyway, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Alan here in Houston. Look, I have a question about uh, ducks and permaculture. I was having a discussion with a relative of mine who has ducks and uh, coming up with a couple of ideas, but largely drawing a blank. Um, obviously, there is the option to vertigate with the uh, wastewater from the ducks and to incorporate a uh, rain barrel system with a float valve to keep their little pool uh, filled. They have the ducks in a uh, small enclosure at the time being, and uh, I was just wondering what your opinion on it was since you've had ducks and you've had time to observe their behaviors. Obviously, eggs and feathers and products like that play a role. Um, what other advice do you have? Thanks. I'm a new duck keeper. So temper everything I'm about to say with the fact that I have 26 ducks or 28 ducks, whatever number of ducks it is, and we've had them since March. We've had most of them since May, late May. I'd say April, since April. I mean, June. No, May, since May. So a couple months with the majority of them. Uh, so temper everything through that lens. But this is my opinion of ducks so far. If ducks are going to be part of a permaculture system, they have to be ranged, at least paddock shifted, if not free ranged. The beautiful thing about it is you can, but if you can find a duck, you're going to create an awful lot of waste and an awful lot of work. Your idea, and this I can say with confidence, unless you have like a really big uh, space for them to swim in, and you're still dumping it once every week, uh, but your idea of hooking up a rain barrel to like a kiddie pool and having any number of ducks use that kiddie pool and keep topped off is is awful, horrible. It will be the rankest, nastiest, stinkingest sludge pile of duck crap water that you can think of in, in, in a week. It will be beyond words how much poo is in there. Ducks spend most of their poo time in water. They go in water, out it comes. It's like, I don't know, it's like the old joke that doesn't work where you put the guy's hand in warm water when he's sleeping and he pees himself. It doesn't actually happen. Mythbusters tested it anyway and said it doesn't. But it's like if that worked. Duck in water, poop. Okay, so when and I have this 20-odd ducks, and I have five kiddie pools for them. These are the small kiddie pools, about six foot around. I'd say they're about 10 to 12 inches deep. We fill them every day. When we dump them, they have a quarter inch of duck poo sludge on the bottom of all of them. If you let it go two days, it's pretty rank when you dump it. So it's pretty much a daily chore with ducks to dump that stuff. So if you don't have a pond of size that they can swim in, that you can do your fertigation out of that pond with, and you're using containers, you're going to have to move the containers around, and you're going to have to daily dump them. That doesn't mean it's not permaculture. It just means that's a workload that you're going to have. That's what we have to do. And it's the only way that we can make that work. Now, function stacking this into permaculture is easy. If you have a swale system like I do, you put your 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 uh, pools in the swales, you fill them, you dump them right into the swale, and you move them down the swale. By the time they get all the way through the swale system, you come back to the beginning. This means your ducks are in your food forest. They're hunting grasshoppers and other insects. 
They're pooing when they're not pooing in the water. They're pooing through there. They're eating weeds. They're eating insect pests. They're, they're hitting slugs. They're doing all kinds of wonderful things. And as long as they're well-fed and they have lots to forage on, uh, they will be pretty soft on the land. They don't scratch. They don't eat a lot of the things that you don't want them to eat. They will eat some lettuce and stuff like that from time to time. But in general, they pretty much do everything that's bad about a chicken, they don't do. Right? If they're in the same place all the time, though, they will compact soil with those flat feet constantly going. So a place they exit or enter water a lot, they'll compact the soil and they'll make it bare. So you have to think about that and how you harness that. Ducks in permaculture, reality, though, is like anything in permaculture. It's an elemental analysis. What are the intrinsic characteristics and behavior of the element, if it's a living element, and how? what are the products of the behavior, and how do I put those products into the system so that it becomes a benefit rather than a liability? So the product of a duck, foraging, pooping, those are your two big ones. They produce some feathers, they produce more ducks, they produce eggs, but in general they produce poop, And they forage and eat and they compact soil if they're in one place for too long. So now you just have to understand those functional elements of that individual biological element and say, how does that fit in my system? And then here's the hard part. Sometimes the answer is that element does not fit in my system. This is not a duck system. Ducks are not good here. Or... That element does not fit in the timing of my system currently. So if you're putting in a food forest, they may be kind of harsh on a young food forest if they're not given enough things to occupy their time and their minds and their appetites. But they might fit in that system beautifully in a couple of years. So whenever we look at an element going into a permaculture system, we have to stack the function in both space and time. Where does it fit And when does it fit, right? And how do we put those two together so that it works out in a way that creates harmony instead of chaos? So you got to think at a higher level. And I can't really tell you what to do with ducks in your system because I don't know what your system is. But it sounds like confinement, so a confined area for the ducks in the system. So you got a few ducks in an area where they're stuck, they're not allowed to go anywhere else, and one little pond for them to pee and poop in and get their water from and do duck stuff in. It's not that that won't work. It's that plus rain barrel plus float valve won't work. It just won't work. What you what you're going to have to have in that system is a discharge for that 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 wastewater to go through, some way to harness where it goes. And if it's always going to the same place, you can over-fertigate. So you might need like a reed bed that can handle dealing with the waste that then slowly discharges into a garden system and slowly improves fertility. That can work. And then you need a way to make the function of replacing the water daily work. If you have four or five ducks using a 50-gallon stock tank as their their pond, their portable pond, it needs to be emptied during the summer every day and year-round no less than every other day. And if you don't do it, you'll wish you did. Now, can some system be rigged up where the waste goes immediately out and starts to do it itself and topped off? Maybe, but I don't know how to do it. I'm not saying it can't be done. 
ideal would be a pond of some size, some substantial size that they can do most of their stuff in, and then that overflow can be harnessed or, uh, or, or what have you. But I'm telling you, when it comes to portable ponds and ducks, it's a daily chore. It's not a big deal. If you have water availability, if you have running water available and it doesn't cost you a fortune to fill up their containers, it's not a big deal. But if you want to convince yourself of this, it's just that it might be bad for your ducks. Let ducks poop in a kiddie pool for three days and dump it. I'll hold your nose when you do. And wait till you see what's on the bottom of that pool. And that's why they're so fantastic for helping to seal leaky ponds. Now understand what that means. A duck will not seal a pond that's just that's just not holding water at all. But a pond that holds water and slowly leaks out, you put ducks on it, their duck poop will seal it up. And you'll think, how can a dozen or two dozen ducks seal up this great big pond? Look at the bottom of a kiddie pool after a day. And you won't ask the question again. So understand the function of the element, the products of the element, And then stack the element into the system based on where it fits and when it fits. That's the formula. So you have to analyze the system to know where the element fits into it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Max in St. Louis, Missouri. I saw your request for calls on Facebook and just thought I'd get your thoughts on the uh, Ebola outbreak in uh, Western Africa. The uh, news seems to be reporting on it now that a few Americans have been infected, but to me it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Um You know, for uh, Western modern countries, uh, it seems pretty unlikely that it could uh, it could spread that badly. So I uh, just thought I would uh, get your thoughts on that and uh, have a good day. Yes, I find all the talk of Ob Ebola and who could come here and we'll all die to be just completely over um, overhyped bullshit. And I'll tell you why. It has to do with like basic scientific facts about Ebola. So let me give you the basic scientific fact about Ebola that should make you go, oh, I am more worried about planting my apple tree than whether or not somebody even across the street from me has Ebola. And here's what it is. You have to come into very close contact with the person. You have to be exposed uh, either orally or through cuts in your own body to their blood their organs, or their bodily fluids. And if that doesn't happen, you're not getting Ebola. If somebody with Ebola vomits all over the place and, and you have a cut on your hand and you get the vomit in your cut, you could get Ebola. If um, someone dies and they had Ebola and you go kiss them on the face or something to say goodbye to them, which is how some of these people are getting Ebola over there, you could get Ebola and die. If you eat their raw heart, you could get Ebola and die. Um, the the link is to monkeys, which are consumed in some of these places and sometimes not cooked. And, and you shouldn't even be something with Ebola, even if it is cooked. I mean, um, Charlie's upset because he saw the squirrel out the window there. But you should not be touching anybody that's dead or dying or leaking fluids with Ebola. But that's about the only way you're going to get Ebola. Uh, if a person you know, vomited and bled all over the place in a room and you went in there and didn't know it and, and got in contact with it, I guess you could get Ebola. But it, it, this is not something that a person's going to go, that's you, and, and then it's going to be in the air, and then you're going to breathe it in and you're going to get it. It just doesn't, it's not heavily transmitted person to person. It One person, though, can infect a whole family because if you think about your household and how close people live together and 
kissing kids and if you live in a place with poor sanitation and there's human waste around and people routinely are injured because of hard lives and they have open sores and things like that, well, then you can get a pretty high number of individuals infected from one. But even if you look at it that way, If Ebola was the threat that it's being made out to be to the modern world with good sanitation and people not like, you know, eating monkey parts and, and what have you, okay? And, and other things that I'm just going to leave out of the picture. You would have, there's only one way this could be a big threat to us. The virus would have to mutate. The virus would have to mutate. It would have to re, 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 um, it would have to keep its mortality rate and mutate into something that could be transmitted from more conventional means, like the flu. Okay, so let's put it in perspective. If Ebola mutated to be as communicable as the flu, well, then you got something that could kill millions or hundreds of millions of people. But There's no reason to believe that's the case. Ebola is not the flu. It's not a virus like the flu. Um, I'll put it to you this way. Getting Ebola is easier as far as contagion than getting AIDS, but it's more like what's required to transmit the AIDS virus than what was required to transmit the cold or the flu. That's just how it works. So scientifically... The communicable nature of Ebola is very limited to high, high degree, close contact exchange of bodily fluids. So if you stood in a room for an hour with, with four people with Ebola, but didn't spend your time wiping spit off their face or, 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 or licking their wounds or something like that, you'd probably walk away without Ebola and never get it. Right? If they vomited on you, you got a problem. Okay? So if you're worried about Ebola, don't get vomited on by people with Ebola and you know, don't don't consume raw organs of, of monkeys and uh and don't if you see somebody with a gaping wound sore and you have a cut of your own, don't rub them together and become wound buddies like old blood buddies. And and, and you probably don't have to worry about Ebola. In fact, that's why some of these people with Ebola are being, you know, people are saying, like, Germany let people with Ebola come to Germany and go to hospital. Yeah, because Germany wants to figure out how to treat this shit. You know, if, if, it, if it ever did become a problem, knowing what to do about it might be a good idea. And they just know that it's not like somebody with smallpox. There's another example. So they're, they're, they're touting Ebola in this fear campaign because, again, remember what the media is doing. Pay attention to me. Look at me. I'm relevant. I matter. You need to pay attention to me. Watch the Kardashians get a new ass. Please pay attention to me. Please pay attention to me. Please pay. That's what the media is doing all the time anymore. More and more people are going, you guys don't matter anymore. And then we got to come up with something. There's Ebola in Africa. Well, let's tell them it's really dangerous. Well, but it's not. But they don't know that. We won't even lie. We'll just keep talking about it and talking about how bad it is. And we'll let them assume that it's dangerous. You see? Oh, we found somebody that went to Atlanta with Ebola. We, there's a doctor in Dallas that came back from Liberia with Ebola. Well, he's probably over there treating people with Ebola. That's a good way to get Ebola. But am I worried that, that, that there's a doctor from Dallas now back in the country with Ebola? No. 
I feel bad for him. I feel bad for his family. He's more than likely going to end up dead. And if not, you know, it's not like you won't have any long-term repercussions from having this illness. But I'm not worried that he's going to magically transmit the Ebola virus across the Ebola Internet and it's going to infect my brain and kill me. That's just, it doesn't work that way. So this is what I say about Ebola. It's an example of the type of thing that could become a big threat to humanity, but it's far more likely that you're going to lose your job tomorrow than anybody you know is ever going to get Ebola. And you are better off being prepared to deal with basic illnesses that will take you out for a couple of weeks and make you unable to work and figure out how you're going to get through that and sit around worrying about Ebola. It's a bunch of bullshit. It is something to pay attention to a little bit. It probably warrants one millionth of one percent of your time uh, just to pay attention. It's like... <sighs> It's like a story about somebody somewhere that uh, was killed. As a human, you have empathy for it, and you say it's too bad that that happened, and you might be interested in the circumstances of it, but you know it doesn't affect your life. That's Ebola. Let's take another call. Yes, Jack, uh, this is Fish in Amarillo, Texas. William in Amarillo, Texas, Fish on Zello. Uh, my question is, the uh, rabbits and quails, which do you think could be more productive? Anyway, thank you. I am neither an expert on rabbits nor quail, but I would have to say from a total productivity standpoint, I think it'd be tough to be quail. Um, the life cycle of a quail from chick to harvest for meat is faster than a rabbit. One quail can produce a lot more eggs than one bunny can produce produce rabbits so uh and then when a quail lays eggs i can either incubate them for meat or i can eat them as eggs and a quail eats basic inexpensive poultry feed and if i can do anything to pasture it either pasture finish my young quails or whatever um i just reduce that cost rabbits obviously can eat rabbit feed and a lot of things harvested from the ground but i just don't think that If we look at the square footage required, the square footage required that rabbits can compete with quail, um, let's say well, it takes five quails to make the meat in one grown-out rabbit. I'm not sure that's accurate, but I think I'm going high enough in number of quails that that's, that's pretty accurate. Uh, or at least, if anything, I'm, I'm, I'm underselling the quail, so to speak. So... Uh, Moon Valley Prepper was on. We talked about quail. These numbers are out of my head, but I think they're pretty accurate. In his one-car garage, he has an area that I believe is about four foot by two foot and then stacked up toward the roof where he has all his, his entire quail operation going on. He's producing, I believe, he said 1,400 quails a year. I know it's over 1,000. I'm going to go with 1,400 and about 20,000 eggs, because he's only hatching as many as he can deal with, in a four-foot-by-two-foot area. Now, let's go with a 1,000 quails, because I know it's more than a 1,000 quails. And let's say five quails make one grown bunny fryer rabbit. Well, a 1,000 quails is, then, uh, is equivalent to 200 bunnies. And I know rabbits are productive, But I don't think there's any way in hell in a four by two foot footprint stacked, I guess, you know, six foot up 
that you could produce 200 fryer rabbits, and that's not accounting for 20,000 eggs. So I, I think when you look at square footage and inputs required and maintenance that a quail is more productive than a rabbit. Now, if anybody's raised both and you want to challenge that assumption, I welcome your input. I really do. But I think that if a person wanted the easiest thing you could do to put meat and eggs on the table and you weren't going to do chickens, um, it would be hard-pressed to beat quail. I'm really, really thinking that the next element to get added here is quail. I think I've figured out a perfect area to do it in. And what I need to do is build some little tractors, because this is my thought for quails. I would like to raise my baby quails in quail hutches until about two to three weeks before they're harvested, and I'd like to tractor them and finish them on pasture. I think that from a practical standpoint, it's the it's the, probably the best way to go. And that way they get finished that, you know, and there's probably some things could be done to put a little bit of fat on them at that point and make them even better. But I think that if, if if you want my honest opinion on ease and productivity, when I look at adding another animal to this place, I, I get real leery. I'm almost thinking, like, sometimes I actually look at the geese and go, you guys don't take a lot of time up, but you eat a lot of feed, and you're kind of a pain in the ass, and you guys do mess stuff up, and you're kind of bullies. And if I ate, ate geese... I'd have one goose named Buddy left that could live with the ducks, and as long as he doesn't cause any problems, he could be the guard goose. And I'd go with ducks and chickens, and I might be better off. And that, might, as much as I love having the geese, it might happen. Just from so either whether the geese go or not, I look at I do want more meat production, and the two obvious choices are rabbits and quails. And you're going to have to come up with a major case to me to do rabbits. My gut on that one is quail. They eat the same food my chickens do. I don't have to buy more feed. I have to buy more, but I don't have to buy a different feed. And I can incubate eggs, raise baby quails, put them on pasture. Bam. I can clean. If I do breast outs, I can clean quail in 30 seconds a bird. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, quail might be the way to go, bud. I'm telling you, I just think so. And um, eating quality, I think you're... Six and one half dozen of the other. I love rabbit, and I love quail. And uh, I, I, I give the edge to quail. I'd love to hear from anybody that can confirm, deny, or challenge that in the show notes for today. Hello, Dick Spirko. I saw your request for calls on Facebook. Uh, my question for you today is about the ebook market. And how do I get involved into the ebook business and use this to help finance my homestead I'm designing? And what are any other tips you know about the ebook market for someone writing a how-to ebook, if you will? Thank you, Jack. Your show is the bomb. Um, I don't know enough to give you tremendous amounts of advice on ebooks as far as how to, where to go, and things like that. But I will tell you, this is my overall assessment of ebooks. Ebooks, one way or another, are the future of publishing. That the days of stacked bookshelves are rapidly coming to an end. A bookstore after bookstore after bookstore is closing its doors. The purist that says people will always want books that they can hold and touch and smell is the same person that said 
there'll never be a day when there's no more records the LPs because people like the inconsistencies and a little bit of sound and the, the the smell of a vinyl record and there will always be books just like there'll always be vinyl records and you can go find some vinyl records right now but you can't buy a new one nobody makes them anymore and I think books will hold out longer than the LP because there is a certain value to having a book on a shelf but when I can pick up my iPhone and travel with almost my entire library on my iPhone on an airplane without carrying a bunch of heavy shit, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy. So the reason I start with that piece is I want to explain to you the genesis of the ebook and where it's really come from in the Internet age. This is a case of the individual entrepreneur understanding the market before the market understood itself. So not very long ago, there was no Kindle, there was no Nook, There was no electronic version of most books put out by, from the small publishers to the large publishers. It didn't exist. And they all thought it was a terrible idea. People will make copies, whatever. But entrepreneurs figured out, if I wrote an ebook on how to make money or how to lose weight or how to grow a tree or whatever it was, that I could just bypass publishing not give a shit. If I know how to use Microsoft Word, I can put all the pictures in I want, all the diagrams, all everything I want, spin that sucker to a PDF and sell it for 20 bucks and make exactly 20 bucks. There's almost no cost to delivery. The people who make copies of it. So people made software that would make it so you can't just save a copy of a book and there had to be a password to open it and, and things like that and limited downloads and all types of other things, and it was somewhat functional and somewhat useful. But to tell you the truth, most entrepreneurs that were writing these books just wrote the book the best that they could, sold the book based on its value, and trusted the market that the sharing would be limited, and also trusted that if there was a lot of value in that book to somebody that did get a free copy, They'd turn around and come back to that author and buy other things from them. So they did a good job of the back-of-the-book marketing like got made famous in the 70s with conventional books. And they saw it as if I write a book and I make $20,000 off that book, that's $20,000 I didn't have. And I can't even approach a, a publisher with a $20,000 in sales. They don't want to print a book for, for that low cost of sales. And I'm only going to get 10% of it, maybe, if I'm lucky, if I use a publisher. So that's $20,000 I didn't have. And if people love the book and somebody gives away 50,000 copies of it because it gets so on fire that people find out they can get it for free without paying for it, and 50,000 people read the book, I should just be slap happy over my head joy. Well, no, because you lost $50,000 times $20. No, I can't lose what I didn't have. And now I have 50,000 fans that everybody's now trying to figure out how do I get those on Facebook that were that happened virally, and everybody's trying to figure out how to make that happen. So I should be grateful, and if I'd done my job right, they should all be beating a path back to me. So the entrepreneur did it first, and there's nothing wrong even today with that approach. Open up MS Word. Pound out your book, do some editing, add some some images, spin it to a PDF, and start selling it either directly or through ebook marketplaces and things like that. I would say this though: the market, the big giant Leviathan behemoth, stupid market that tries to tell the the customer what they shall have, has figured this out now, and. 
the software or formatting or whatever's necessary to format your book so that it will work with Kindle, so that it will work with Nook, and anything else that's out there that's popular is where you need to be going forward. You want people to be able to go Amazon and buy your, your book in Kindle format. You absolutely want to. And you can do that through things like CreateSpace and Lulu, which are for self-publishers. And so the way that you build an ebook marketplace is the first thing you got to do is write a book so you have something to sell. So you got to, you got to write your book no matter what. I think it's worth finding out, like, is there... Is there, and I don't know the answer to this because I've gotten so off of writing books at this point, I, I, I've lost touch. But is there a template where if I put my stuff in here, it makes it easier for me or for somebody I'm paying to convert it to something that would work with the Kindle, etc. And, and to maybe use that and harness that. So you got to write a book. Now, in the end, you're going to have to market this thing. So I think that a good author should have a website. And that website should do all the things that a good entrepreneur's website does. And you can go to jackspeargo.com and listen to all my business podcasts over there. There's over 120 of them to learn how to build a presence on the Internet. I cannot do that in one, one, you know, one go. But a good website interacts with your readers and your visitors. It develops relationships. It creates a list of leads. It builds an email list. So one way or another, you want people entering their name and their email because that's your, that's your potential customer database. Okay, That's, that's how you're going to reach out and say, hey, I've got a new book. Come buy it. It is, it is way more effective than postal mail. And if all you do is blog and say, I'll no, update you when there's new posts on the blog, you better be blogging every day. Or you, if you're doing an audio thing like I do, you better be doing it every day like I do. Or you're going to get a very small opt-in rate. The best thing that you can do are things like this. Take your book and make a super light version of it. Or just, if it's a fiction book, put the first three chapters into a PDF. And make it available to anybody that wants it for free. All you got to do is enter your name and your email, and you get redirected to a place where you can download it, and you can have the book for free. Or you can have the light version, or you can have the preview for free. And then sell the upsell in the book, sell the upsell in the opt-in, but build the, the, the list. And start asking your customers and your potential customers, what do you want next, and tailor to the market. I don't care if you use a publisher. I don't care if you sell through Amazon. I don't care if you sell through CreateSpace. I don't care if you've you got to do that in this day and age. You've got to build your own brand as an author. Um, there are publishers that will work with you, but most of them are still also going to want to do a print book, and that's fine. And some books sell well in print. Um The Doom and Bloom Medical Handbook that Amy and Bones put out is the kind of book that's gonna, that's almost more like a reference textbook. It's gonna work better for now in hard copy. I will tell you this about the electronic book market. We are headed for a place where no matter what the book is, no matter how many diagrams or tables or charts or anything that's in it, we are headed for a place where the electronic version is going to be preferable because it will work better. When the first Kindles came out, and they were black and white screen, and you just page through, eh, you know, they were great for a book that you just read. They were terrible for a book with a lot of images and pictures and things like that now. But honestly, now, if you have an iPad and the Kindle app, the pictures are probably better than they are in a print book. And you can zoom in to things that, that you know you, you couldn't quite see. On a PC or a Mac w running the Kindle app, 
and you're looking at it on your screen and you can search and find things quicker and you know is it all in the index I don't know I'm looking for this one thing and the author and the editor didn't think it was enough important to put that one thing in the index I can find it I can highlight places I can find my highlights I can share my highlights it is only a matter of time as this technology continues to evolve where no one is going to want a print book except for very specific reasons. Like, I want it autographed by the author. Or it's a collector's edition or something like that. Day-to-day -day reading, the days of the printed book are gone. They're over. They're done. And if you don't believe it, you're just a dinosaur clinging to an archaic technology that's been surplanted and outdated. But what if the internet goes down? And Well, what if your aunt had balls? You know, that's what I say to the people that are always, well, what if this and what if that? What if your aunt had balls? If your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. But I don't think you're going to start calling her Uncle Sue anytime soon now, are you? Right? She's Aunt Sue. So getting started, I think, is you got to write the book. you got to learn the space. You've got to learn what does it take to get into to, – to, it kindles the big, the big dog. So you want to be in Kindle format, even if you never have a print book. The nice thing is if you use a platform like CreateSpace or Lulu, you can have both. But eBooks are the way because they let you make the most amount of money because you have the lowest cost of production. It's like software. All your production's in the development. All your cost is in the development. And that point on, once you're profitable, it's almost like printing money. Right? The only cost then is marketing. And good, effective viral marketing can be done very, very low cost. So I'd say learn what you need to know to be composing in a format that is easily convertible into Kindle. <coughs> Excuse me. Look at things like CreateSpace and Lulu and anything else that's out there. Do consider working with small publishers that provide things like help with editing and formatting and stuff like that. Because I think if that's what a publisher's doing, that they earn their piece as long as it's a reasonable piece. But look for a publisher that's really pleased about the concept of going electronic. And I'd like to say for people that think that's not a good idea, going electronic with books, look at what it saves. I'm sitting in my room right now. And it's been a while since I bought a book that you actually hold in your hands. It really has. But I am a knowledge enthusiast. I have, I'd say my office is barring on being a small library. But I'm thinking how many, how many trees were cut down to just print the books in my one room? How much do they weigh? When we moved, we sold a lot of our used books just because we're like, I'm not going to read that again. I'm not going to read that again. I'm not going to have value. And it's just the, 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 the logistics of the, the weight of moving these things. When I look at these books, I think how many, how many miles worth of gasoline were burned to transport these books? And I, when I look at it from an environmental standpoint and a functionality standpoint, I see in both ways that ebooks are better for everybody. So I'm encouraging you to continue. And your number one thing you're going to have to be able to do as an author is write well. Your number one things write well, be interesting and compelling so people want to read what you have to read, and market yourself and your product very, very well. For more help on that, the website is jackspearco.com. The podcast there was called Five Minutes with Jack. There's over a hundred and some odd episodes. 
They're all available for free. I recommend you start with episode one and go forward. I will tell you that if you don't like my off-color language here, I use more of it there because it's business principles and I'm a hard ass about a lot of things. I'm not going to make more of that. That podcast is done. I keep the site up and available to you so you can learn from it. The day, I'll tell you, people want to, what, what would it take to get you doing business podcasts at Five Minutes with Jack again? The day that somebody can come back to me and show me of the, the hours and hours of advice and recommendations that are there, that you've done everything I've recommended, and there's nothing there that you haven't implemented, I'll make another episode. Until then, this is what I do. SurvivalPodcast.com. Jack Spirico helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you